You're listening to Cutaneous Miscellaneous, the Dermatology Residence Podcast. Apparently, my singing debut from the last episode ended up in the hands of some music scouts, and my phone has not stopped ringing since. From American Idol to Warner Music Group, I've been offered everything from record deals to a world tour. But of course, I can't be an internationally acclaimed recording artist and host this podcast at the same time. So I thought long and hard about it, and even though it's my dream to be a singer, it's ultimately more important for me to remain as your host for this podcast. It's sad my music career was very, very short-lived, but I'm so happy I get to continue helping out my fellow colleagues excel in the field of dermatology. I'm also so happy to introduce our very special guest. She's been a wonderful mentor to me and is now a colleague and a personal friend. I'd like to welcome Dr. Tina Butani to our show. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me. Really nice to have you here. Great to have you here. Dr. Brutani is Associate Professor of Dermatology at UCSF in California, the co-director of the Dermatology Clinical Research Unit, the co-director of the Psoriasis and Skin Treatment Center. She wears many, many hats, and I can't tell if she's wearing a hat because it's a podcast, but if she was wearing one, I'm sure it would be a very nice one. (laughs) I would hope so. (laughs) So, Dr. Brutani, again, awesome to have you here. We've got a lot to cover, as we always do. You're a psoriasis expert, so the first thing I want to discuss is uh, high-yield psoriasis board review tips. Then we're going to talk about clinical trials for the resident, how residents can better interpret clinical trials, and if they want to start a clinical trials unit as a private practice physician or at an academic institution, what do they need to be aware of? So psoriasis, everyone sees psoriasis pretty much all day long. I hope you all know what it looks like and how to treat it, but when it comes to the boards, there's a couple of... Uh, high-yield tips we want to discuss. So, Dr. Batani, first thing I want to ask is the drug triggers for psoriasis. Can you tell me what these drugs are and which ones have short, intermediate, and long latency? So, if they come up into question, we can kind of narrow it down. Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, you know, traditionally, there's kind of a list of drugs that we think about as um, possible triggers for psoriasis. Um, Terbinafin, the NSAIDs, antimalarials, you know, even like um, hydroxychloroquine, um, ACE inhibitors is on that list, beta blockers, and lithium. I think those are kind of the the traditional board review answers when we go down the list of drug triggers. Um, Of those, I will say that um, usually terbinafin and the NSAIDs um, it's usually a quick, uh, quick triggering event. So basically, the patient will take the take the medication, and soon after, within you know a few weeks to a month, we'll notice worsening of their psoriasis. Whereas um, some of the other drugs, like the beta blockers and lithium, for example, they might have a longer latency period um, before they actually see the impact on psoriasis. So patients might say, "Well, you know, I've been on this drug now for you know three, four months. It can't be that, but it, def- it actually definitely can be." Um, so, so those are traditionally beta blockers and lithiums. Have have a longer, longer latency period. Very important point to pay attention to the latency period, because as you said, it could be 12 weeks, multiple months before we see yeah. the flare. How about yeah. TNF-alpha-induced psoriasis? I'm confused by that, because isn't TNF-alpha <laughs> inhibitors a treatment for psoriasis? So can you comment on that? Yeah, it is. It's a curious phenomenon. But what happens is, is um, these are patients who who don't necessarily have psoriasis. They have other diseases like rheumatoid arthritis or Crohn's disease, and they're taking TNF-alpha inhibitors for that indication. Um, and they paradoxically then develop psoriasis where, you know, they, they might not have had psoriasis before. Um, this can be your prototypical plaque psoriasis, but oftentimes it presents as um, palmoplantar pustulosis, which is interesting. So again, if you have 
have a patient who is being treated with the TNF-alpha inhibitor who now has new onset psoriasis, again, usually about three months or longer on the drug, um, you know, I would think about TNF-alpha-induced psoriasis. The treatment for this is actually either just switching to a different TNF-alpha inhibitor, which is, which is again, a curiosity of this, of this um, disease, um, or just switching to a non-TNF inhibitor. So oftentimes we'll change to, you know, Stellara, for example, for patients with Crohn's disease or, or a different drug for patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Right. And the key here is they're on the TNF-alpha inhibitor for like Crohn's disease. Um, if a patient's on a TNF-alpha inhibitor for psoriasis and they come in with worsening psoriasis, it's, it's not really TNF-alpha-induced psoriasis. It's worsening right, psoriasis. Right, not right? by this definition. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah exactly. I had a medical student say, oh, the patient's got TNF-alpha-induced psoriasis and they have a history of psoriasis and they're on the drug for psoriasis. So no, not, <laughs> doesn't work like that, right? That just means the drug's not working. <laughs> yeah, okay. Just making sure. So uh, yeah. uh, excellent. Next is uh, comorbidities. Very popular topic today within the psoriasis community and amongst all dermatologists. So please give me a couple of high yield tips um, for these questions on the exam. Yeah, I think, you know, the hot um, comorbidities for psoriasis that are talked about a lot are really the components of the metabolic syndrome. So we're talking about um, things like obesity, hyperlipidemia, um, cardiovascular disease, um, hypertension, diabetes, for example. So um, kind of these uh, metabolic, cardiometabolic um, comorbidities are, are things that we talk a lot about with psoriasis. Um, but it's also important to remember that um, patients with psoriasis are actually also at increased risk for malignancies. Um, most likely lymphoma, most commonly lymphoma, but any other kinds of systemic malignancies as well. We see increases in colon cancer and um, in, uh, in uh, basically solid organ tumors, essentially in psoriasis. So it's also important to keep that in mind. Um, things like uh, uh, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis or fatty liver disease is more common in psoriasis patients. Um, things like sleep apnea are more common in psoriasis patients. So the list of comorbidities kind of continues to, to increase over time. But I think those are the more common ones that are that are talked about and probably would be asked about on the boards. Right. And this is something that we don't really think about a lot when a psoriasis patient comes in. They have a couple of plaques. We give them a topical steroid. We, we, we're in this mode, but it's very important to keep these things in mind and also to keep in mind that these psoriasis patients, you know, should establish care with primary care doctors if they're relatively healthy, just to keep an eye on these things and that some systemic psoriasis treatments are actually thought to lower these risks, to lower the overall burden of inflammation. We want to keep that in mind. Uh, next thing I want to ask you about is, is phototherapy. I know you're an expert phototherapist and a lot of programs don't do phototherapy or not exposed to it very much, but yeah. it's very testable on the exam. So I want to ask you about phototherapy. Please tell me a little bit about that. And the first thing is, what is the wavelength for narrowband UVB? Because I know this comes up all the time and you just have to know it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is one of those things you just have to memorize it. So the wavelength for narrowband UVB is 311 to 313 nanometers. Um, and so so that sometimes, you know, will will come up on exams. Um, narrowband UVB is the most commonly used type of phototherapy um, for psoriasis in particular, but also um, a number of other, you know, inflammatory skin diseases that we treat. Um, other types of phototherapy, though, are broadband UVB. We talk about UVA phototherapy, um, both uh, PUV and UVA1. So um, there are other, other types of phototherapy, but narrowband UVB is by far the most common. Okay. Yep. Phototherapy is really great on exams. Just want to mention eczema laser, mm -hmm. 308 nanometers. And this may come up on an exam where a patient comes in with maybe a solitary plaque on their scalp and they may want you to go for eczema laser. It's pretty much narrowband UVB in, in, in a laser tube form. Finally, I'd be remiss without mentioning Geckerman. We, we've both done... <laughs> 
many hours, years together doing Geckerman. <laughs> and uh, this is crude cold tar plus phototherapy. So if you ever see this definition come up, um, everyone should be aware of that hi- historical purposes. So that was awesome. Um, we really learned a lot about psoriasis there. So everyone should please make sure to review this and keep these points in mind. But let's jump into the main part of the episode, which is clinical trials for the resident. And I, I want to talk about how to better interpret clinical trials. There's so many clinical trials these days. It's the lifeblood of dermatology because if we don't have clinical (laughs) trials, we don't have new drugs, the field's going to be stagnant. And we've seen a lot of great progress recently with a lot of new drugs for things we never had drugs for before. So first thing I want to ask about is when residents, when doctors look at clinical trials, what are some things to be aware of? And I want to ask you first about things like endpoints and and speed of onset, and just how do I look at a clinical trial and just get the most information out of what's going on here? Yeah, I think, you know, um, you'll be surprised. I think once you start reading enough clinical trials or results from clinical trials, you'll find that there's a lot of overlap, especially if you're looking at clinical trials within one disease state. So again, we'll take psoriasis as the example. Um, So the first thing I look at, yeah, is what is being measured. Um, And in psoriasis, oftentimes this is either um, what we call the POSI score or the psoriasis area and severity index, which is basically a conglomerate score of things like erythema, scaling, and duration of the plaques, but also takes into account body surface areas and um, areas of the body that are that are involved, like whether it be the head and neck or the trunk or the extremities. Um, it's actually a really complicated scoring system, um, but but POSI is a um, is commonly used as an endpoint. Also, more recently, we've seen the transition away from the POSI because it's so complicated to something called the IGA, um, which is the Investigators Global Assessment Score, and that one's like a little bit easier because it's basically like a zero to five. Um, score. Um, And so it's a little bit easier to interpret, a little bit easier to translate into clinical practice, right? Because we're not going to be doing POSI scores in in clinical practice. We just don't have time to do that. So the IGA has kind of taken over as something that... um, a little bit more easier to interpret. Um, And then we also look at things like body surface area, just in general, you know, how much of the body is affected by psoriasis. And there's a few others that that you might see coming up. But but again, you know, these endpoints tend to carry over and are similar between many, many clinical trials. Okay, so important to know what the endpoint is for that clinical trial. How about something like speed of onset? Is that something that we should pay attention to? Yeah, the two things that I really look for when I'm looking at efficacy of a drug is how quick it works and also um, um, how how does it maintain over time. So um, how quick it works, I think, is important for our patients, right? Because everybody wants to get clear and they want to get clear quick. So um, I think that's something that I always um, look into. Um, and then, like I said, we want to make sure that this drug continues to work over time because psoriasis being a chronic disease, it's not going to go away. And um, we would love to keep the patient on the same drug for years on end if possible. Right. The ideal drug works quickly and then maintains itself for a very, very long time. That's the sure. ideal case. How about sure. when you're looking at these drugs, these study drugs, what can they be compared to um, in clinical trials? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, traditionally, they were always placebo-controlled trials, and the FDA still requires some amount of placebo control. So when drugs are tested, there's always going to be a placebo-controlled trial where patients are getting um, basically just an empty injection, you know, for biologic trials or a sugar pill, you know, for for oral drugs. Um, but now they're actually starting to also do a lot of active comparator trials. Um, a lot of this is, you know, once again, mandated by the FDA because they want to see how these drugs compare to what's 
already on the market, but it's also great marketing for for drugs, right? If they can show that their drug works better than than you know their main competitor. So more recently, we've seen a lot of things like um, for oral drugs, for example, comparison to a Premalast or Tesla, which is you know currently are you know the most commonly used oral, um, and then for biologics, we're seeing kind of comparisons um, to adalimumab or secukinumab, um, which have been around a while now. Okay, so yeah, first placebo or active comparator. It's very important to know what the drug is being compared to. And mm-hmm. I have a friend, he loves candy and he always does clinical trials and hopes for the sugar pill so he can just get free candy. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. wouldn't recommend that though. Uh, cer- <laughs> certainly, certainly one way to do it. Uh, and then, you know, you, you, made, you made a very good point about efficacy, but the other big thing to keep in mind is safety. So can you just mention uh, briefly about how to interpret the safety parameters of these drugs or what to look out for? Yeah, I think so. You know, usually in these clinical trials, when I when I'm reading the paper, there's usually a summary table of um, you know adverse events or most commonly seen adverse events. So first of all, I'm looking at what are the things that are most commonly being seen, and do any of these sound concerning? You know, oftentimes it's things like upper respiratory tract infections. Um, you know, acne, you know, things like that, that that you'll see kind of listed on this adverse events table. What I do is I look at the rates for the drug, and then I look at the rates for either the placebo or the comparator arm. And so what that tells me is, you know, does this drug have any more of these side effects than either a different drug that's already on the market or to patients who are getting placebo? And if the rates are kind of the same across the board, then we know these adverse events maybe weren't likely due to the drug. These were just things that were happening to patients while they were in clinical trials, right? People get colds, people get normal things that happen. Um, but, you know, if there is something that stands out as drug-related, then, um, then that is something that I take into account and I think about and I counsel patients about when I'm, when I'm prescribing this drug. Awesome. Um, one more thing I want to ask about is, obviously, as clinical trials go on, patients drop out for various reasons. So what are some ways that clinical trial uh, doctors account for these things? Yeah, so there's different ways of of uh, looking at uh, data in a clinical trial or missing data, we call it. So these are either patients that drop out or um, or patients who basically, you know, might not have come to all their appointments, like they had endpoints that were missed in between. So um, a few different strategies. One is called um, last observation carried forward. And basically, they're taking the last time they saw the patient, whatever was happening to them, and then they just kind of carry that forward. So essentially, for example, if a patient drops out, after three or four months, they take whatever that three or four month data is and they carry it out to the end of the study. So that's one way of, of kind of uh, accounting for, for patients that drop out of the study. Another um, uh, common uh, strategy that's used is called non-responder imputation. And basically that just says that whoever drops out of the study or for whichever patient we don't have complete data on, they're just considered a non-responder. So they're, you know, they're, they're for all intensive purposes, kind of, um, uh, you know, given the lowest scores um, as far as efficacy goes in the trials. So that's thought to be the most conservative effect because um, by calling them a non-responder, you're essentially underestimating the efficacy efficacy of the drug. And so the hope is, is that overall the the efficacy might even actually be better than what you're seeing. But um, but that's kind of the most conservative and thought to be the, the you know, the best approach to, to looking at clinical trial data. Awesome. Those terms always confuse me. And that was an amazing overview. I feel so much more comfortable now looking at clinical trials. So thank you. Next thing I want to ask, and this is really what I'm interested in, is running a clinical trials unit, setting up a clinical trials unit after residency or as an early career dermatologist. And I want to ask, can you run clinical trials with little to no experience in residency? And what are the advantages and disadvantages of doing this 
after residency if you choose to. Yeah, I think it's always possible. It's going to be, it's hard to do, uh, you know, not just to be completely transparent. It is hard to do, but it's totally possible. I think the key is, is if you have no clinical trials experience, you want to make sure to surround yourself with people that do. So um, a lot of times, you know, one thing is it's really hard to do clinical trials alone. You basically can't do it alone. You're going to need something like a research coordinator or a research nurse. And when you're hiring that person, if they can have clinical trials experience, I think that will be totally helpful to you. So kind of investing in that uh, person with um, experience in the beginning will kind of save you a lot of time and effort effort down the line. Um what are the advantages of doing clinical trials? I think, you know, first of all, you're going to be able to provide your patients with treatments that, you know, are not commercially available. And especially if you're seeing a population of really complex patients who um, have difficult to treat disease, I think it's a it's a huge advantage. Um, patients like to see doctors who are kind of on the cutting edge and who know, um, you know, who are quote unquote experts in the field. Um, so I think that that's, that's always really helpful. Um, it's also just a lot of fun. You know, it's just, it's cool to, to get kind of a sneak peek at <laughs> um, how these drugs are going to work in the real world, what problems are going to come up. Um, and so for me, that's, that's part of the reason that I, that I like to do them. And, you know, um, in many, if, if you can, if you can do it right, they still can be financially lucrative. I don't think they're as lucrative as they were um, previously, but, um, but they still can be if you're able to recruit enough patients um, and see the right population. Absolutely. And I think one really cool thing about clinical trials is you get to learn to use a drug and be comfortable with it before it ever gets FDA approved, obviously, yeah. if it eventually does. And then when it comes out, you know, you're kind of the expert. You can talk about it, you can speak about it, and you're very comfortable with that drug. And it's just awesome to contribute to, to new dermatology medications because, again, yeah. many, many, you know, conditions we've had, we've had no medications for, and now we have great medications for. It's really great to offer our patients something that really works. I know, Absolutely. you know, we, we, yeah, we discussed advantages, disadvantages, and, and there's a lot of paperwork involved in clinical trials. So can you just <laughs> briefly tell me some, the, the major paperwork things you have to do, uh, again, when running a clinical trial, when setting up a clinical trial? Yeah. So dis, yeah, the disadvantages I think would be that it's a very heavy administrative burden. So again, um, picking that experienced person to help you will be will be critical. Um, when you do clinical trials, there is you know a paper trail for everything. Um, you know there has to be uh, there are certain regulations that you have to follow. You have to you know meet certain criteria. All of this needs to be documented. Your office needs you know certain CLIA requirements. Um, you you have to um, sign you know financial disclosure forms. There's, you know, a number of things that have to happen to start up a clinical trial. Um, and then during the conduct of the trial, you know, every communication that you have with the sponsor, every communication you have with the patient, you got to, you know, be tracking this. You have to have a paper trail um, explaining every decision that you make and why you made it. Um, uh, so, you know, if basically you were to ever get audited by the FDA and they came and looked at all your files, it would be very clear, like what happened. The story would be told through through your, your chart and your paper work. So even though, you know, in clinical practice, we tend to be very thorough in writing our notes and make sure everything's in there. It's not as, um, as uh, you know, monitored as closely as with the clinical trial. So in a clinical trial, it's even more important to be like very, very detail oriented and document everything. That's a great point. Uh, it goes without saying, and I think this is probably a stupid question, but if you don't see any psoriasis patients, 
it's pretty hard to do a psoriasis clinical trial. Is that correct? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I would definitely say, you know, know your population. Yeah. If you're not seeing psoriasis patients, it's going to be hard to do a trial. That being said, you know, a lot of um, sponsors do do these national advertising campaigns. They have companies that are helping them to recruit patients. So even though you're not seeing them yourself, it is possible to do the trial with this, you know, outside help, um, people kind of referring patients to your practice. Um, but it's a little harder. It's a little harder. So ideally, those patients are coming to see you already and you can just kind of, you know, divert them into the trial. Right. And recruiting patients is so important, right? Can you just talk a little mm -hmm. bit more about that? Because if you don't have any patients, you don't recruit patients, you're pretty much just going to get nowhere. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, you know, clinical trials budgets nowadays are all basically done on a per patient basis. So essentially, if you recruit no patients, you basically make very little money. Um, and so, you know, all that time and effort, all that paperwork that you did to get that study started, all that effort basically essentially goes to waste many times if you don't recruit any patients. Um, uh, but if you recruit the patients, you know, that's when you start to get paid. And so, so there is an incentive to do studies where you can recruit um, a large number of patients. How about writing protocols? If someone has no experience with protocols, is that something that can be learned in a reasonable amount of time or is that just going to be a really big burden? Yeah, I think, you know, in order to do industry-sponsored trials, you don't need to know how to write a protocol because oftentimes the protocols are just handed to you and you're just kind of executing them. But a lot of times people who do clinical trials want to do what's called investigator-initiated trials. Um, and these are ideas that you have just from, you know, doing your own practice and you say, hey, I want to test this. Um, and you can write a protocol and then you can submit it to industry or to different grant funding mechanisms and you can try to do it yourself. And so for those, I think it's important to... to at least um, have read a number of protocols so that you kind of know what the basic components are. Um, but writing it isn't too hard. It's basically a template um, and you and you kind of fill in the blanks. And again, if you've seen if you've seen a couple, you've kind of, you know, know, know what that looks like. Okay. So that's a great point you bring up about industry sponsored and investigator initiated. Those take a lot of work. But how about a registry study? Are, are those a little bit easier to run and manage? Yeah, well, I would say yes and no. Um, I think, you know, for registry studies, basically what we're doing, they're just observational studies, right? We're not giving patients any drug. We're just um, following them for some reason. Most commonly, it's for drug safety. So we'll say like, you know, every patient we put on a biologic, for example, we're going to enter into this registry and every time they come into the office, we're going to gather information on what, you know, adverse events they're having, what problems they had, et cetera. And this is going to give us real world inf information about how these drugs are functioning in the real world. Um, with registry studies, it's, again, really important to be able to recruit patients. Um, and it's also really important to be able to capture the patients when they come back, because if patients aren't coming back, you're not going to be able to gather the data. Or if they come back and let's say you missed the visit when they came back, then you also have kind of this lost data. So um, registry studies tend to have greater number of patients in them, you know, than, than clinical trials, because we're, again, not giving them drug. So you have to have somebody who's going to be able to manage this large number of patients and, again, large number of visits. Um, but, but yeah, theoretically, you don't have to worry about drug storage. We're not doing labs. We're not doing, you know, all this extra things that, that we sometimes have to do for, for clinical trials. Awesome. Dr. Bittani, that was amazing. I feel like I'm ready to start my unit tomorrow. So if you don't hear from me, <laughs> I'll be setting up my unit for the next couple of days and I'll be in touch. <laughs> just, just kidding. Nice. So it, it kind of sounds like to me that, yeah, a lot of work, but a lot of benefits. And it's definitely possible to do it if you have no experience of residency, but you kind of have to join a practice, surround yourself with people who are doing it or have done it. And then you kind of learn from them as you go on. Is that right? Totally. Yeah. Okay. I would say that's the best way to do it.
Awesome. Awesome. This has been, again, an amazing episode. We got through so much. We're almost out of time. And we always end with a fun personal question. And Dr. Brittani, I know you live in San Francisco and I lived there for a couple of years and had an amazing time working at UCSF and living in San Francisco, living in the Bay Area, really a dream, dream to do it. So I want to ask you, what's your favorite thing about San Francisco or the Bay Area? Oh, man, that's tough. Um, I mean, for me, there's, you know, so many parts of the city that I love, but the food is, you know, definitely something that I, I, I agree. We I, have am, some good I meals. am a foodie and this city has made me a food snob so that wherever I go, it makes it really hard to enjoy meals because the best meals that I have are back home. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's my favorite part of the city. We had some good meals, whether it was like pizza or burrito delivery to, to the Sarai's <laughs> Center or, or very fancy meals out in the city at Michelin star restaurants. We certainly yeah. enjoyed the dining and it's something I miss a lot, of course. I miss Napa. I miss Pebble Beach. I miss Santa Cruz. I so know. I think yeah. it's time for me to visit you guys out there soon. So. <laughs> You're welcome anytime. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much. It's really helped me and helped my uh, fellow resident colleagues learn about clinical trials and running clinical trials. So really appreciate you joining me tonight. Awesome. Thank you. Wanna hear your girl